these drugs were stigmatized for a very long time where they could have been beneficial during all of these years that we've been working on it. And mental health needs to be destigmatized and patient access has to be prioritized. And I just want people to have those conversations and be thinking about that. This is Tectonics, the podcast focused on the people and passion at the intersection of technology and health. Amy Emerson spent years in the biotech field developing drugs the old-fashioned way. Today, as CEO of MAPS B Corp, she's applying her expertise and commitment to scientific rigor to bring a whole different class of drugs, psychedelics like MDMA, to patients seeking relief from PTSD and other serious mental health conditions. This is Tectonics. I'm David Shaywitz. And I'm Lisa Sunan, and we're grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. So David, here we are. Yeah. <laughs> At our homes again. <laughs> what were we saying before, you know, and during the pandemic, every day is Wednesday? Pretty much. That's the way, I, or Monday, depending on how you look at it. So um, I'm curious, David, um, there's been all sorts of activity in the recent election to legalize um, cannabis in particular, but also uh, psilocybin. Um, what's your view on this whole movement to legalize psychedelic drugs in this case for medical use? Yeah, and I saw that recently the House, I think, the House of Representatives has actually um, approved um, uh, some legalization legislation, although it's not expected at the moment anyway to pass the Senate. Although they Um, could probably use it to lighten up a little bit. Yeah, you know, I feel like I always make um, sort of like these jokes, but I feel like I'm the wrong person. I Like me and uh, one of the, uh, this guy, Jonathan Last, an editor at the Bulwark, are like probably the last two people on earth, and he at least isn't in California, who's never inhaled, never done... I've, I'm like, I think because there's always been so much peer pressure to do it, I, to do any of these things. I've never done any of them, like not even like not smoked a single joint. So I kind of feel like I don't really have the proper perspective on this. Interesting. Um, what about you, Lisa? Yeah, I'm not sure I can say what you just said, but I'm, I am quite fascinated <laughs> by, um, by the um, potential medical uses. I do think that, you know, people swear by it from a cannabis standpoint, and there's even an FDA-approved drug that's cannabis-based. And we've had uh, guests, right, with uh, yeah. who have focused on the distribution. Happy, uh, yeah, what was Hello MD, yeah. Anyways, today's guest, um, Amy Emerson, is focused in this area, and we are delighted to have her on the show. Hi, Amy. Hi, Lisa. Hi, David. Thanks for having Thanks me. Thanks for joining. <laughs> so nice to have you here today. Um, I know you grew up in Kodiak, Alaska, fell in love with both animals and science as a child, and later in life, when considering veterinary school, realized that you love biology but hated math, which I, I, as a math atheist, I can fully appreciate, um, and that you'd rather live in the wilderness on a lake and look, look upon science as a form of art. Your path uh, led you to microbiology labs for fish and game, to bench science and biotech, but a chance moment at Burning Man led you down a totally different drug development path. Uh, Today, you're CEO of MAPS B Corp, and you guys are focused on bringing the first FDA-approved MDMA product to those that suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder and other health conditions. But I want to start by asking you, Burning Man, 
Its website, I looked at it, call, calls it an annual experiment in temporary community dedicated to radical self-expression and self-reliance. So I'm curious, what is it to you, Burning Man, and what drew you there the first time you went? Um, that's a great question. Um, to me, what drew me there was, I was curious. I heard about it on the radio, of all things, in the late 90s, this <laughs> thing that was starting to happen in the desert. And it was, um, I didn't have any friends that had been, but there was a popular radio station in San Francisco at the time. It was like the Live 105 with uh, Alec Bennett, or yeah. Alex Bennett, what, what I can't even remember. And he was going and he kept talking about it. And I went home and told my husband, I'm like, we have to go to this thing. And so there's not a ton of information to go on. Uh, on how to prepare for it, but uh, we did. And we, I had a little Saturn at the time and we wow. packed it up as much as we could and went. And um, uh, I had never experienced anything like that. And I think I'm, I'm always drawn to new ideas and um, experiences. And uh, so that was, that was what got me there. And then I was so impressed with the temporary, the amount of work people do for something temporary. Like the art was incredible. You're an artist, right? And you, you, at a welder. And I, I think have, you even developed that, some art. Have you developed art from Burning Man? Because of Burning Man, I did learn to weld. Um, wow. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm an artist, but I definitely am drawn to, you know, learning, learning different things and having art, art as an expression. But um, uh, yeah, that it's it, for me. It was so. I was just so impressed with. The, it sounds mind expanding. Yeah, yeah, it was mind expanding. <laughs> <laughs> it's psychedelic mind manifesting. <laughs> Love it. So you now that Burning Man experience must be a far cry from Kodiak, Alaska, where you grew up. Um, would you I ever don't know? Find... Uh, Kodiak, Alaska is a lot of radical independence. Really, that's so interesting. <laughs> what was it like to grow up like that? Essentially, the wilderness out there in in Alaska. Can you can you name like all the different kinds of salmon and? And stuff like that. I did. I can't, I worked for Fish and Game for a while. I had to know all of my salmon, and I had to know what sex they were. <laughs> what was it like? Looking. I mean, I don't uh, know anybody that grew up in Kodiak, Alaska, besides you. Now, what what was that like? I. It's a pretty amazing place to grow up. I always refer to my dad as like thinking he was like Grizzly Adams. You know, like <laughs> it wasn't just that we lived in Kodiak. We like lived on a far side of a lake that you couldn't even drive to when I was really young and uh it was pretty rustic we had like a log cabin house and um not like you know kind of makeshift plumbing water coming in from the lake and those kinds of things um but then that uh a few years after that we moved like where you could drive to our house but i just grew up like running around in the woods uh you know playing with kids i had horses in the summer it stays light so like midnight, we would be was out. Was it very northern? Was it like north? Did northern exposure get anything right? Yeah, yeah, I kind of feel like it did. It, it did feel like that. You know, everybody knows everybody. There's like one stoplight in the whole town. Um, you know, it's a uh, it's and then like you, definitely radical reliance. You know, there's it's it's a it can be a radical reliance of, place. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> so you moved to North Carolina for high school, though. Yes, that yes. so that must have been quite a culture shock. It was, yes. <laughs> also amazing, another small town. And that really um, introduced me to the fact that I love warm weather. <laughs> and I don't really want to live someplace where snow comes to me. Um, 
And, <laughs> you know, just experiencing, again, what it's like to be in a, you know, the small town, like community is really important to me, I think, because yeah. of the places that I grew up. And yet you did go back to Eastern Washington State University. So not exactly the warmest place on earth, but close. No, I know. Washington State. Yeah, it was cold. It was colder than Kodiak. <laughs> and you studied cell biology and genetics. So how did you, was it because of your experience with animals? What drove you to that? Um, I picked that, I knew I wanted to go into science. Like I always, since I was young and living in Kodiak and just fascinated by science, every science class in school, I think it's what I excelled in. And then, um, you know, looking at all the different majors, it was also the time when biotech was becoming, you know, a big thing. It was in the, um, you know, late eighties, early nineties. And I had heard of this place, Genentech. And I was like that. So it was like the only thing I had to focus on. Right. I was like, Genentech, that's biotech, that's science. I wanted to be a researcher. And so I picked genetics and cell biology because it seemed like it was the hot thing. And then I had a minor in molecular biology. And uh, one of the lab TAs that I worked with uh, had worked at Genentech. So that, that it was like, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of thought that went into this. It was, I like science. I want to work in research. Biotech is the big thing. I have to do this and then get to California. And so you and, did, right? You got to California. You started in, in bench science and yep. in the pharmaceutical world. Yep. Was it all you hoped it would be? Um, I enjoyed it at first, but then I realized you or when you're in bench science and you're in that development, you know, drug development stage or preclinical, you're proving yourself wrong constantly. And you're kind of in the lab a lot of times alone. And I'm very much a people person. Um, and so then I started looking, well, what else can I do with this? Um, and that's when what I do you mean by proving yourself wrong constantly? <laughs> you're just, you know, okay, we have this idea. This might work. We were working in HIV research. This might work. So then you set up all these experiments for it. And then you're like, okay, well, that didn't work. Back to the drawing board. How can <laughs> yeah, we- Lisa, nothing it? works. I mean, that's the whole problem with the, like, like that everyone knows about. I mean, I think it's Derek Lowe is describing, he, he's, he's a chemist who um, writes about the industry for science. Um, in the industry, I think he's at Novartis or something now. And he says he hasn't worked on a program. He's a chemist, you know, medicinal chemist. And he said he hasn't worked on a program since he started that ultimately found its way to the clinic. So yes. it's, it's, it can be a real challenge. It Sounds is. like venture capital uh, investing. <laughs> it is. And I didn't love that. I was like, wait, I want to, I want to work on something that's actually made it past that step and is going into the clinic. Um, so within that same company, it was got to applied immune sciences. I, um, I moved into their clinical research group and started learning uh, the next stages of drug development. So you, I didn't even know existed when I was in college. So you studied Probably. human biology and fish biology in the lab. What's uh -huh. the greatest similarity? Oh, man. I don't, I, I can't even think of an answer to that. <laughs> fish biology I was doing was like salmon scale sampling to see if the salmon were from like specific rivers. And so because <laughs> the fishermen were fighting over how much salmon they got to catch. And so where did they come from and what's my allotment? I don't know. I don't have a good similarity for it. <laughs> That's fine. So you made it to Chiron or the or the early the early company of Chiron in this early yeah. day. Yeah. That's really interesting. Chiron. Yeah. I mean, that was a big one. Yeah, it was yeah. a big one. Uh, yeah. worked on numerous critical vaccines during your long stint there. Um you must be very interesting for you to have had that experience and to watch what's going on in the vaccine world right now. 
Yeah, it's fascinating. What, is, what are your and a lot of my colleagues are working on COVID vaccines or something uh, related to this now. Yeah. Anything yeah. you'd observe or, or want to share about that? Um, I'm amazed at how fast this was able to go and just the advances in vaccinology, the way that they're able to produce the vaccines and move quickly on these, um, these study designs. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's just impressive. You know, it would take us so long to develop mm -hmm. and go through a clinical trial. But when there's, boy, you really see how things change, how the, all the gears change when there's something really hot and important in society that it can Out of go. curiosity, do you think it's the technology? I mean, obviously that mRNA stuff is very different, like the Moderna approach yeah. and the BioNTech approach. But how much of the difference is, I mean, this is, I'm really interested in this, is the differences due to, improvements in technology versus how much of it is due to the both the um the fact that recruitment is incredibly fast now because you know everyone has it number one yeah. and the fact that people are doing a ton of stuff at risk because people are covering that you know they're essentially uh you know kind of like uh encouraging people to do that by um so so you don't have to wait for a phase two success to pre-invest in phase three. Absolutely. I mean, there's the technology piece of it is amazing, but it's all of these other pieces that you just said, David, that are making this go fast. It's this incredible amount of tension and it's like just opening up the pathway in every part that you needed opened in for this to go quickly. There's money, there's the funding, there's an incredible amount of attention. Um, the, the, every, you know, there's enrollment's not difficult. It used to take us forever to enroll a clinical trial. Um, there's just all this agreement that's happening um, on, on you know, all of the parts of the development pathway that is allowing it to move forward more quickly. Do you think any of that will create an ongoing change in drug development? Speed. I hope so. I feel like it. <laughs> I feel like it is, and I feel like COVID itself is creating an ongoing change in drug development in the way that people are finding ways to use technology, do things a little bit more remotely, um, expedite some of the pathways. Mm -hmm. You know, it's really. Um, I love this quote. I think my husband read it in the big picture. Was like, "This isn't so much changing the future; it's accelerating the future." Something right. But lines. do you feel like for vaccines, I, would you look at the results here and say, oh, OK, this is we can readjust what our ex, we can recalibrate our expectations for future non-pandemic vaccines based on the timelines and that we're and the federal commitment that we're seeing now? I wonder about that. I, I think if it's something that's uh, of high medical importance, that's true. But if it's something that people don't feel very worried about, you're still not going to get the enrollment to be expedited and all of the a focus and attention to be on a vaccine that people don't feel like is that important, right? It has to be something where you're generating so much public health interest in order for it to move fast. Yeah, like I, I think mm -hmm. you're spot on, Amy. Yeah. So as it turned out, um, your transition from pharma and traditional pharma or biotech, I should say, to burn it to um, current work, <laughs> traveled through Burning Man. Yeah. And it was at Burning Man where you and your husband were doing some cleanup work uh -huh. that you accidentally picked up a flyer that uh, about a, a program, Mind States, that Rick Doblin, who, who, who originally founded MAPS, was doing. And uh, that sort of led you to a moment of clarity, you said. Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, we we were cleaning up moop matter matter out of place <laughs> on the playa uh, with the leave no trace policy and kind of listening to Larry Harvey talking. We were kind of all all around and he was talking about Burning Man losing money and the difficulties with BLM and all this. And um, but the you know we're we're like thinking about do we want to come back on another year? And uh, my husband's like look at this flyer. It's the Mind States Conference. It's in Berkeley at like the International House. And we lived in Oakland at the time. And uh, it said it was about psychedelics. And we were like, let's go. <laughs> so um, I can't remember exactly what year that first conference was. It was in the late 90s. And we went for a couple of years. And at one of them, Rick was speaking. There was also other groups speaking. They were because at first, you know, none, there wasn't a lot of research going on at that time into psychedelics. There was some more academic research or NIDA research into like the dangers, right? But there wasn't like human research or research related to really trying to look at an indication like PTSD or depression. Um, and one of the years, there was both the people from USONA speaking and Rick speaking about starting human clinical trials again. And I, I kind of looked into both of them. Uh, like on one, like after that day of talks, I looked into kind of both of them. And um, I was like, USONA is really more academic based and I'm, I'm not an academic. I purposely, I chose to go into industry. Um, and Rick really, I heard him kind of describing it as wanting to start a nonprofit pharma company uh, to do this in a different way and to really be able to start this research again. And so uh, during one of his talks about how he envisioned this happening, I looked at my husband and I was like, I have to help him do this. It was just like it was. It was like a moment of clarity where I felt like I never really looked back again. It just felt like something I needed to do and wanted to do. And I, I just remember feeling very clear and very excited because I was like, wait, I have drug development experience. It's not in psychiatry, but the drug development pathway is the same. No matter what you're working on, you have to learn the background, but I know the steps. And this is something I think is so interesting. And from my own previous personal experiences, I felt like these tools were so important. And I'd always felt pretty fascinated about the history and what I was reading about them, you know, and about what happened um, when they first kind of tried to be brought forward with Timothy Leary. And it was, you know, it failed. But there was so much, so much interesting information there that uh, when I heard somebody really wanting to bring this forward, I just, I, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. I can see why you would be the exact perfect person for this, where they're, you know, they're trying to say, okay, we want to do this in a robust way. And you are um, have that background to really bring this forward to understand what rigorous you know, drug development involves. What I'm curious about is what, you know, of, of all the different things in the world, what personally attracted you to this particular, like what resonated about it? I mean, I understand you encountered it via Burning Man, but personally, like what resonated with you? Was it either personal experiences or was it something something else? I mean, of all the things to be drawn to, um, how, how did you, what was it about this when you, at least when you reflect on it, that mm -hmm. especially resonated? I think it was that combination of personal experience where I, I, I felt like this was important. And I, when I had my first experiences, I was already working in science and I was already working kind of in the beginning of drug development, like that preclinical stages, and then had already moved along in my 
career and had still kept having some personal experiences and kept thinking, wow, these are, this is important. This is important. You know, this isn't, you hear about the recreational aspects and I really hadn't been introduced to the, really the underground therapy or even the past history of um, these substances used in a therapeutic way until I went to the Mind States conference. And it just felt like it all came together. And I think there's also this part of me that loves to problem solve. I'm very curious. I'm drawn to to um, novel experiences and new ideas and problem solving. And this felt like a very creative uh, problem. But also, I don't know if I can totally explain it. It really just felt like a moment of clarity where I was like, wait, I have the right background. I have the right interest. I can, I can just absolutely see the mission when Rick described it. And I loved this idea of doing something in a nonprofit context, right? Like you just think about pharmaceutical reputation, the, uh, you know, of uh, the cost of things and all of the money and like to do something, to develop it ourselves, to build the group, to build this program and do it in a different way, do it in nonprofit. It just, all those pieces came together for me in a moment. There wasn't, again, a lot of thought about it. It was just clarity. So I, what I love about your story is that you just reached out to Rick by writing it. You didn't know him. You just wrote him a letter. Yeah. You know, and I think so many people come to me and, you know, for advice on career and say, how do I get to work at a company like this? And I say, what, have you tried calling them? And the, it's always <laughs> like, what? You know, but you actually just did that. You just reached yeah. out and then he eventually reached back to you and said, you know what? I actually do need what you know. Yeah. Yeah, I had a good friend that really encouraged me and my husband, my husband at the moment when I told him I need to help do this, he did not tell me that he was thinking, wow, this guy's amazing. What a wonderful idea. But like, this is never going to work. Like he was thinking that as I'm thinking, I got to do this. And he didn't tell me till a long time later that he was thinking that he just encouraged me. (laughs) And then I had a good friend, Julie, that also I worked with at Chiron and she was like, you got to just like send him your resume. It's <laughs> so funny. So what was it like going from, you know, the world of biotech and big pharma to the world wild, wild west of psychedelics? <laughs> it was a very slow process. Like I, <laughs> for six years, I still was working at Chiron um, and then it became Novartis um, and nights and weekends I was w- doing the maps work and it was very slow. We only had, you know, there was not a lot of funding one small study with Michael um, and Annie Mithofer that Rick and Michael had like gotten approved by the FDA. I helped get it through the ethics committee by writing a monitoring plan. That was what Rick finally called me about. He's like, I gotta write, we have to write this monitoring plan. Do you know what that is? And, you know, I said yes and wrote it. And then it just kind of kept evolving. Like I didn't, uh, there was no, there was no plan. It was just, he kept asking for help. I kept offering to help. The study got going. And I just got more and more involved until, um, you know, and, and kept doing the job I was doing uh, with the vaccine development. Um, and then at some point, uh, as Chiron became Novartis and they were going to move the Bay Area office to Boston, and I really didn't want to move to Boston, I ended up agreeing to take, um, take a severance. And I had, so I worked for about another year as that, all that process was going on. Um, but that kind of opened up a whole new chapter in my life. I, after that happened, I took off and traveled for 16 months and kept helping Rick like remotely. Um, 
working on documents and protocol kind of changes. But the study was long. This was our very first study. It took a really long time to do it for, uh, for being the first psychedelic study out there, our first MDMA study out there in patients. And um, when I got back from all of that traveling, uh, there was the study was done. We were getting uh, better results. We'd started a second study. We were able to talk about the results. More funding came in, and then there was money for Rick to hire me. So that was really in 2009 where things really shifted. So it was this long, slow process uh, to to that point. So it didn't feel so much like the wild, wild west. It was just kind of one of the. It was like almost like a a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So it's fascinating because you know it was a pretty long time ago. Uh, 1996, the state of California legalized cannabis for marijuana was still called then for medical use. Uh Um, It's been a pretty slow process, Mm -hmm. to be honest, of making it sort of mainstream. I mean, literally, yes, you know, Friday that, you know, as Dan alluded to the, the House of Representatives, you know, voted to um, stop enforcing the law, basically the illegality of it. Um, But all of a sudden, lately, I've been seeing all these companies get funded to explore what we all used to consider party drugs uh, for serious medical conditions, right? You know, think MDMA for one thing, but uh, cannabis, psilocybin, a whole ketamine, a whole range of things that are being funded and legitimized um, seemingly overnight all at once. Why now? What's happening that that is driving that ha- occurrence now? Yeah, I think it's been this kind of uphill battle for so long to start to get the information out there to people. But I think that the cannabis um, piece has, was a part of it in that mm-hmm. people started to accept that. That was a big change in our society and in the government for that yeah. to change. And that kind of started to open the door is it a gateway drug? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> a gateway development program. Gateway drug and- to Twinkies. I Actually, but, but, but to that point, Amy, let me just ask you a quick question on this because I'm really interested. Um, one of the issues that a lot of um, the uh, the cannabis folks were having was just getting traditional loans from traditional sources where people were, were not doing it. And it was a U.S. problem because yeah. these hedge funds were investing hugely in like Canadian you know, I mean, it was, it, was, it was industrializing in Canada. And meanwhile, in the US, like, you know, people went directly, there was all this indirect sort of stuff, but it, it was hard to do business um, where you couldn't work with some of the traditional, you know, pretty robust yeah. structures of business. What has that been like on your side? Well, <clears throat> Yeah, that is a, it's been a, a, it's been a very difficult problem, the, the banking, I think, because we're, we were a nonprofit, and a very like mission oriented education, um, and harm reduction and research organization. uh, We, we did have a bank account, and all of our money did come through, through donors, like it's all been more personal connection to this mission uh, Hmm. where people have donated and then some personal like, you know, private foundations, but we were never able to have government money. And there definitely has been banks that didn't want to work with us either because of the word psychedelic. And especially when we, we also have a cannabis study, cannabis PTSD study. And a few years back, that was quite difficult for us with banking uh, because it was just on our website that we were doing it, even though it was a federally approved study. Um, it's, uh, it, it creates a roadblock 
Absolutely. For funding, for banking, for some of the normal things that you would take for granted. Is that changing? I mean, is that becoming easier now in the U.S.? I am not as familiar with like the banking for the cannabis industry, honestly, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming it is because I see it booming. And I, I know I just, that, that yeah, some I of the people have taken advantage of the niches, that niche market, right? right. Yeah. And I see all sorts of companies getting venture funding that yes. are focusing around this space. So it's so interesting yeah. to see. And definitely the tides have changed. You know, it's yeah. like, and it happened in this, it's like it was this long, slow uphill, you know, but as we started to change, I think the cannabis industry helped to change things, right. open doors. Um, us having data, the psilocybin researchers having data, um, things being published in scientific journals, plus the media. We've always had actually um, amazingly positive media around these things because I think when people see we're doing something different, we're actually taking this pathway and um, it doesn't actually seem that radical. It's pretty recognizable to anybody that's familiar with the scientific and drug development pathway. Like all of those pieces finally started to build on each other and with enough data and enough publication, it's like, you know, the doors were opening a little, a little, a little, but definitely a tipping point was hit where, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. it was like, I I think right around the time that we finished our phase two program, we got breakthrough therapy with FDA, Um, We were able, we got approval for a phase three program. I felt like that was a lot of the catalyst too. And around that time, there's the depression studies were coming out, Johns Hopkins, there was a lot more big name people also starting to fund it like Tim Ferriss, right? There was, people were bringing a lot of attention to it. So it was public opinion and, you know, regulatory opinions were changing around at the same time and cannabis was opening up more. What's so interesting was my initial reaction was, my gosh, you know, wouldn't you have so much of a better, you know, be able to support, to drive this forward faster, not, you know, if you were sort of more of, you know, a traditional company um, where you would, you know, where people would invest, you know, expecting some kind of return. Um, but what I think is so interesting is given this unique nature of the barriers here, I feel like there's so much you were able to likely do, whether from regulators, um, from, from, and from, you know, certainly from the media, um, if you were for profit, they would hate you. Um, yeah. And from, from other folks um, where you're getting a lot more encouragement and sort of, uh, you know, tailwinds um, precisely because of how you did it, that might've been the exact right way to thread this needle. That's so interesting to me. Rick was brilliant with this strategy. I really feel like picking, um, understanding that this could be really beneficial for PTSD, uh, which is, you know, it's a highly publicized um, indication and there's public knowledge that there's need Mm -hmm. for that. And then doing it as a nonprofit, um, David, I think you're absolutely right with the way that you described that, that, and also if we would have taken investors, there would have been like, you can't use the word psychedelic or you have to do it this way. And, you know, it would have, it would have taken us off of our mission. And Rick has always had a very clear mission. Um, and we've been able to control that mission in the way that we've remained very independent. So my question is, um, having said that, now that these things are, let's just presume that, you know, your clinical study is going to come out well, that others in the field are doing clinical studies and other drugs are going to come out well, um, because there's some indication that's true. Um, Is the inevitable outcome that this field is run by the traditional pharma and med tech or biotech companies? 
I hope not. <laughs> I really, I feel like that one of the things that we're doing and by being independent, believe me, we've had a ton of pressure to take investors and make this go faster, you know, and have resisted that. And I think it's like, we kind of get to set the precedent in a bit of a way, like who's going to mm -hmm. compete with the way that we're doing this or, you know, the cost for us to do this is so is less. We were, you know, people are working really hard for less money. We're not, we're gonna be setting prices in a way that is aligned with public benefit. Just the whole idea of public benefit corporations is still fairly new. And right. the fact that we we're owned by a nonprofit, but the group that I'm a CEO of is a for-profit, but is a public benefit. So it allows you to place the public benefit above any profit and then plus double security, we're owned by a nonprofit, right? There's no shareholders to pressure us. And I think that this, helps to set the foundation for the way we want to see this move forward. People are going to measure against that, right? So I think that there's there's a lot of pressure on the whole industry to do this in a way that's um, conscious. There's also, if you think about the background of psychedelics, there's so, there's so many people with an interest in how this moves forward and in their you know, in watching like more from like the public and from the um, activist side and the justice and equity side of th there's a lot of pressure um, on the whole industry to do this in a way that's aligned, mm -hmm. uh, aligned with public benefit and doing it in a conscious way in a different way. Like it, there's not going to be a lot of tolerance for people that are only coming in to make a lot of money. There's conversations constantly, constantly happening around this. When, you know, when we see companies trying to patent something, we have an anti-patent strategy. There's a lot of questions that are asked way more than in traditional pharma, right? You would not question that pharma is going to bring forward a drug. They're going to try and have a patent and they're going to have exclusivity for a long time. And this, you have a ton of people watching every move that you're making to try to make sure that you're, and they're going to tell you their opinions and they're going to publicize if they think you're not doing it in a way that's aligned with the community. I think that's just incredibly different than, than any yeah. other drug development. It is. Well, I, I guess there's also the counter, you know, concern you could have that it's going to go in some ways the way cannabis has, which is, you know, really to corporatize and, and to yeah. commercialize and to become recreational again, right? Um, yeah. Or at least recreational legally. And I yeah. think there's people that have concerns that some of these other drugs are much more potent and potentially yeah. more dangerous. And, and do you think that the pathway, you know, will be blocked by that concern in a way that it wasn't for marijuana? I think there are a lot of people that have an interest in making sure this doesn't just go the way of marijuana, that there's, and, and the, it, with MDMA, I also feel like it's a little bit different than psilocybin. I think that, mm -hmm. that, that has a little bit more of that potential for that to happen because of the decriminalized um, nature and you know, just like the different states that are decriminalizing, um, that does open the door more quickly for more people to hop in and, you know, start to think about ways that right. they can profit from this um, and also from ways that they can help. But I think people are paying a lot more attention now than they were, uh, but it's going to happen. I mean, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with capitalism or making money either, you know, there's, but I think that you need to be able to have people like us that create some standards to look at that against and be like, no, you know, this, like, this is too much. We want, you know, we want something public benefit. Um, you know, yeah, there's there, there's a lot of concern that this could go the way of the cannabis industry. Um, I, I think to me more so with um, with plant medicines, 
because that seems to be the thing that's being mm -hmm. legalized now and which that does open the doors. And I think there's concern that these are still powerful tools and we want to make sure that as we're doing this, we're looking at harm reduction and training people and making sure people are really well educated about how this is used. You don't want just people just jumping in, you know, especially when you're working with people that have depression or PTSD that have trauma, that this isn't just about, you know, giving people an experience like you're, you have to be prepared if you're going to be in one of those states uh, for there to be some difficult experiences that people have and are the providers ready for that. Yeah. That's and so there's a lot of attention being paid now, um, like from us and from other groups of how do we train people? Um, and, and that's very different, I think, than the cannabis industry also. Yeah. Well, this is so fascinating. It'll be so interesting to really see how this all evolves. And um, I, I, you know, I've really enjoyed getting to hear your story and I know we're delighted to have you on the show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Today's guest, Amy Emerson, was speaking to us from her home in Fairfax, California. Well, I thought it was such an interesting combination of, you know, yeah, yeah, mind expanding, but as, as mind expanding conversations go remarkably grounded, didn't you think? Well, she's, you know, credible professional and has a, a long, you know, storied background in, in the biotech world. And so I think it's think, interesting to think about how this can be done really well if you get the right people doing it, right? That it's not totally. some sort of, you know, random Berkeley experience, but rather uh, a professionalized, you know, intentional experience and set of experimentation that is done in the context of, of caring about people. I think it's fascinating. Absolutely. Well, having said that, you can follow David's column, Astounding Health Tech, at the Timmerman Report. And you can also read his writing at The Bulwark and occasionally in The Wall Street Journal. And uh, please remember to uh, give us a review on your um, podcast app if you uh, like the show, help others discover it. You can follow the inimitable and always mind-expanding Lisa <laughs> and her writing at VentureValkyrie.com. We are grateful to Manat Health for sponsoring today's episode of Tectonics. Manat Health integrates strategic business consulting, public policy acumen, legal excellence, and deep analytics capabilities to better serve the complex needs of clients across America's healthcare system. Together with its parent company, Manat Phelps & Phillips, the firm's multidisciplinary team is dedicated to helping its clients across all industries grow and prosper. All right, peace out. Take care.